Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksikins? What the fuck, Amalans? Oh, man. This is WTF. I am Mark Marin. This is the Monday after Thanksgiving. Before we get started, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, but I do want to mention right out of the gate before I forget, as I will, that I will be at the Arlington Draft House in Arlington, Virginia, December 2nd and 3rd. That's this Friday and Saturday. Please come. I have had five consecutive cheat days. Is that uh, still called a cheat day if you just keep eating? I am not going to sit here and talk about my weight or my diet. I did have a good time in Seattle. I was in Seattle for, what is it, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, five nights. Chose to take a vacation up in Seattle in November. There's a good choice. No, the weather's going to be great. It's not going to rain every fucking day. And I know that some of you are thinking, hey, it's Seattle. It rains up there. I knew that too. I didn't realize just how weighty and relentless it could be i i locked in jessica and i knew that it might rain but come day two and a half to three of just relentless shitty cold rain you start to wonder how the fuck people in seattle keep any sort of relatively light disposition about their life how can you not be just completely oppressed by rain after a certain point. And then you start to look outside and you realize, hey, they're not even using umbrellas. They're just walking around like it's not fucking raining out. That's what happens. The denial in Seattle gets so intense that they believe they're not wet. They believe that they're not just sort of lumbering, kind of you know hunched over, wine-drunk earth nerds moving towards their next destination as if it wasn't raining. All very practically dressed. Very interesting city up there. I've spent a lot of time there. This was the first time uh, I spent this long in a long time up there with Jess. And the people were great. But there is sort of a weird kind of um, very grounded sort of earth nerdy thing going on up there. Everyone's dressed very um, reasonably. But always damp. I think always damp. Bit of a, a beer buzz. Bit of a wine buzz. Certainly a massive coffee high. I don't know how you can be so jacked up in such a... I guess you have to be that jacked up in order to deal with the the grayness of everything. But but like I said, we had a great time. I really appreciate everybody coming out to the Neptune Theater. That was really my first legitimate uh, theater gig. And we sold it out. 800 people and change came. A great audience. Thank you for the smoked fish. Thank you for the homemade uh, blueberry lemon muffins. Thank you for the brownies. Thank you for, uh, what else did I get? Oh, and I was really going to try to stay on the fucking diet. I knew that Thanksgiving would be rough, and my cheat day was before Thanksgiving. So, of course, that day I went out and got fried scallops, french fries, two mochas, a Mexican mocha at a place. Had great fucking coffee up there. But then it just continued. Not too crazy, but I really thought I was going to get back on the horse come, uh, come Friday night, the night of the show, and someone brought me some sort of fruit cobbler that I was about to go on. I just fucking inhaled it. Uh, Mike Drucker was great opening. We had a great 
couple hours of show in there, and it, it was, um, I don't know, it was definitely a, a high point of my life uh, to really pop my theater cherry in Seattle at the Neptune, and I really appreciate all you uh, WTF people coming out, and I don't know, it was it was emotional for me, man. What can I tell you? I uh, I love Seattle. I just do, even though it's rainy and dark. But I, I did stuff in Seattle. Jess wanted to do stuff. I went to the um, Experience Music Project that I've been hearing so much about. There, there seems to be two permanent exhibits there. There's one on Nirvana and there's one on Hendrix, but then it's just a crapshoot. It's like you spend a lot of, you go into a guitar room, got a great collection of guitars, and then you look at the entire history of the Pacific Nor- Northwest music scene focused around Nirvana. Then you go back in time and you do the Hendrix thing. And then it was Battlestar Galactica paraphernalia. And then there was an exhibit on Avatar. And then there's a large room that looks like it could be used as a very high-tech function hall. And upstairs, you can go into sound booths and play or sing or hit on drums. The earnestness that people bring to drums is sometimes slightly disturbing. And I'm not talking about professional drummers because that's something to watch. But you go upstairs in the Experience Music Project and there's like studios where you can play along with a track. And everybody, you know, you can wait in line for a booth. And I saw this middle-aged dude that was just playing the drum with an intensity He had a look in his eye that whatever he was banging, whatever those sticks meant to anybody else watching, to me, it just looked like a guy that was banging his way out of his life for as long as he could in that booth, in that experience music project. You just caught his eye and you had that moment where you're like, oh my God, don't look at it while it's feeding. It was, it, it moved me. I'm very sensitive like that. And, you know, my girlfriend's a vegetarian, so we did a vegetarian Thanksgiving and, and don't automatically think tofurkey. Now, it's not 1975, all right? Tofurkey exists, but there's other ways to go. We went to some place, uh, what was it called? Cafe Flora. It was very nice. It was a prefix. It was a risotto cake with some cranberry stuff and some uh, vegetarian gravy. I don't know what they make that out of. Uh, there was other stuff. It was very nice. People who eat at vegetarian restaurants, I envy them. I don't know if they're like me. I, When I'm eating vegetarian food, as much as I want to lock in with the whole idea that it's better for me and the world and the ground and everything else that's connected with everything, I'm still a little aggravated. And then I get jealous. I get. I always sit in vegetarian restaurants. And I looked at, at these practically dressed, seemingly normal people. I focus in on this one couple. This old guy must have been in his 60s, had a very long beard, no hair on his head, had the sweet sort of uh, worn out uh, old hippie looking wife. And I thought, why am I not that guy? Is it is it too late to be that guy? If I start growing the beard out now in an earnest way, could I slowly move my life towards matching that beard? Could I slowly move off to grid into something comfortable, maybe a wood-burning fireplace, a small house with a lot of knitted things and a few books, uh, maybe no television, perhaps a, a radio occasionally, and per- maybe I'll just make model planes or, 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 or take care of uh, small animals, which I already do. Why do I build a life fantasy around a fucking beard that I decide has integrity? I don't fucking know. I really don't know. But we did. Then we went to another health food restaurant. What health food? What year is it? We went to another vegetarian restaurant, but this was sort of a, a to do. You know, we go to this place. What was the name? Was it, it wasn't called Urethra. It was called, um, it wasn't called. Oh, now I'm forgetting that name too. 
Why? I need to do some brain exercise. I need some exercises for my brain. I got to start doing crosswords. I got to start doing Sudoku. I got to start doing stuff because my memory is drifting away. I don't have any. I don't have any exercises. I don't have any brain exercises other than angrily untangling earbud cords in my car, which I think is challenging. What the fuck is the name of that restaurant? Was it called... um, Fuck, what was the name of it? Was it was it Ovum or um, ah, something? Sutra. Sutra. That was it. Sutra. Price fix, two seatings. You go, you sit down. It's all local. They do the whole kit. It's connected to a yoga studio. They ring. It's all organic, local, vegan stuff. It was very nice. And they come out before the the meal starts and they bang a large bell-like gong and you listen to them. When Then they, they, they give thanks to the farmers and to the earth and to this. And there's part of me that just can't... How is that not funny? How is it not ridiculous? But I'm sitting there trying to make it okay. Why can't we be grateful to the earth? Why can't it be nice to have this nice food that doesn't hurt any any uh, bugs or or... or or animals with meat on them. Why Why can't I just let this be? Why do I have to sit there looking at the people working there thinking like they go home and say, this is fucking bullshit. i just doing it for a gig. They're all hugging each other after the meal. It's all very sweet, but there's some part of me that just won't let it happen without thinking that what is teeming beneath this? What is, what is beneath the yoga studio and the organic, wonderful, beautiful food place where the food was just perfect and great and everybody was thankful they're ringing bells and i'm thinking there's something fucking wrong here what is wrong with me this is the monday the gratitude didn't last clearly i'm here i'm back in my house all jacked up on coffee wishing i had a long beard and nothing to do on the show today we have pen gillette who before i met him i thought he was a difficult person and i probably used uh, different language than that, uh, just from his TV appearances and what I thought was a very abrasive disposition. But what a sweet fucking guy, smart guy, very s- great raconteur, wonderful storyteller. Uh, I talked to him when I was in Vegas the last time I was in Vegas. So uh, that's going to happen. There's some part of me every time I'm in Seattle where I just feel so meditative because of the weather that I just want to, I, I know I may have mentioned this before. I just want to continue moving North. I want to be a trapper or something. No, not a trapper. That's a horrendous job. Maybe just a guy that lives off the land that goes up. He walks up into the Yukon or up into Canada and then up into Alaska. And he just disappears and becomes a myth, like a mythic guy, a mountain man. I want to be mountain man Mark Marin. Uh, you know, I want the story to continue. I want it to be, you know, he had a podcast when he, he was working in his garage. Things weren't going well. The podcast went for two years. He was in Seattle for the weekend. And then he said, fuck it to everything. He bought supplies and then no one has seen him. Some people think he lives up in the hills of wherever the Yukon, Canada, Alaska area and lives. They see him wearing many layers of of pelts and uh and he lives off the land he grows winter vegetables root vegetables and traps rabbits and he has a very long beard they see him occasionally i'd be like a yeti or, or like some sort of weird monster and then i come back 
And I come back to the garage and the readjustment becomes the second phase of this show. That's the plan. If I'd stayed in this, if I'd stayed up in Seattle one more day, I would have done that. Would have left a note for Jessica and uh, just taken a hat and a coat and then just re- just bought all kinds of shit and head up into the hills. I went to REI. I just bought a nice sweater, but I could, I, yeah, I'd go back there and, and just pack up, just leave my car at the Canadian border, head out, no phone. No, I, I, maybe I should bring a phone. I probably need a phone up there, but definitely no computer because what the hell good would it do? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'd probably bring a computer. I'd probably bring a computer and probably, yeah. I, yeah, you know what? I think I'll drive. I'm going to drive. Yeah, just keep everything. Yeah, just in case it doesn't work out. I don't think I've seen you since. Like, I ran into you once when you're... I think I opened for a friend of yours at the Knitting Factory. He was doing some one-man show about uh, emails from Nigeria. Oh, uh, yeah, Dean Cameron. Yeah, and you I... Dean Cameron. And you were sitting in there, and there was like 12 people in there, and it was a horrendous <laughs> set. And then I approached you with some ridiculous story that I've carried with me forever about first meeting you, which you'll never remember, and I just made a fucking idiot out of myself. I don't remember let you making an idiot of let yourself. Me flesh but... it, let, me, let me flesh it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was at Caroline's Comedy Club. Uh, you, were with, uh, you were with Debbie Harry, and uh, I wanted to connect with you somehow. Uh-huh. So uh, I'd just gotten a tape of the Velvet Underground uh, live in Paris, the mm-hmm. reunion. Did you get it? Right. Uh, someone gave me the tape, and they told me it was uh, you know, recorded from the mixing board. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to you, and I said, yeah, I got this tape from the mixing board and you're like well they released the live album what fucking difference is that make? <laughs> and i kind of went oh all right um, i'll talk to you later <laughs> was very very kind of you very kind of you and very ungracious of me oh no i mean you were right i don't you know i don't like i don't know why i didn't put that together but uh you have a way of cutting through bullshit so that was it's a, a, it's, a it's a great record it's a great record I fucking love and it. And I was, uh, you know, I was in London for the first show they did together. Yeah. And although it's not well documented, uh, the first words spoken when the Velvet Underground got back on stage was Lou Reed walked to the mic and said, this is for you, Pat. Really? The first words. Now, are you friends with him? I was very close friends with him when I was in New York. And moving to Vegas, um, uh, the way both of us operate not seeing him on a daily basis we still we see each other very friendly but we're not the email phone call right it wasn't that kind of relationship but by the time you, you became friends with him you know you he was probably later in his career right i mean well yeah i became friends with him in in the 80s late 80s because you know, but he, his career starts in 65 right so uh yeah, yeah, i, I was 10, you know i was 10 yeah <laughs> and it would have been odd if you were at the factory at 10 <laughs> You were you would have been that kid, yeah, but I sure would have been the star of it. Yeah, hell yeah, very popular. Yeah, and I don't think you would have lived past seventeen. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. But it was interesting with me and in, in that Lou thing when I read uh, "Please Kill Me." You know, having loved the Velvet Underground and that uh, that thing humanized everybody. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in that uh, in that book where I was like, "Holy Christ, what a what an asshole he was early on." Yeah, you know. Uh... Not well, to, I don't need you to say he, he is. I love the guy. Everybody but, yeah. had that uh, that rep, that reputation. You know, my my relation with Lou was 
was the kinds of fr- friends who, who who went to movies together. You know, oh, we right, just, right. We just hung out and had dinner and went to movies. So it wasn't a. Um, there's no asshole stuff, but then again, there wouldn't be when you go into movies and. That's right. You, People you, have a different persona. It's when you're. Uh, it's when you're. Uh, uh, working together, yeah. that you get those stories, right? And anyone who's worked with anyone else has a story about that other being yeah. an asshole. Isn't that interesting? Everyone becomes an asshole in your point of view if you're around them long enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you're here. working with them. Yeah, working working with someone changes everything. Sure, it's right like being away. married and then uh, you divorce. You know, she's always the bitch, but yeah. you know, like, yeah, not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Actually, I've heard people. I have heard people with enough uh, presence of mind to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we got divorced and. And I was an asshole. Yeah, well, you got to give it a few months. You, know, you got to <laughs> kind of relish in the fact that you're, you're a victim of some kind, yeah. and then eventually go, All right, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have yelled at her so much. We're coming very close to doing the basic plot of Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have my producer put that in. I'll have him roll it in now. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's my own damn fault. That's the punchline yeah. there. Well, you know, I, uh, you know, I was a little not a little nervous, but not too nervous because I know you you like to talk. But like as a kid, why? What what drove you towards this? Did you think you'd end up in Vegas? I mean, is this a big payoff for you? Well, you know that that's the thing that's so odd for me is that whole way of of looking at things. Um, uh, people who look at their careers as a venue really confuse me, and I, I, I it was so hard for me when we first played Broadway because you you're going to be on Broadway, and there yeah. aren't that many two person shows that are done Broadway. You know, there's a, there's a, you know. 20. Yeah. And uh, it's a big deal, and you're really excited about it. And people would say to me, you know, is this your dream to be on Broadway? And I'd try to be polite. I would say to people, I'm really happy to be playing on Broadway, but the show matters. Yeah. You know, it's not just where you are. And there are a lot of performers in Vegas who say, all I ever wanted to do was be on the strip in Vegas. And I go, how can that be? You know, if you offered me right now uh, a theater in Vegas with my name on it yeah. and the same amount of money and keep all things equal, but I'm not doing the Penn & Teller show, I, I have no interest. You know, it's not well, What the would venue. that show be, though? I don't know, exactly. <laughs> I don't have any interest in the venue, just in the show. No, I get it. And, and, th- and that's real important. You know, right. when, I, when I hear people say, you know, I've always wanted to have a sitcom, you just kind of go, well, doesn't which sitcom matter? Yeah. It seems so insulting to the audience. As long as I'm in this room having this job, I don't care what I do. Right, right. And, Give me the hat and let me dance around. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so uh, I don't think it was ever part of my goal to to play Vegas. But it was your goal to be a, a to a do great a show, illusionist. To do a show. Uh, not what do you even call that. yourself? You know, I I, uh, I I guess if 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 push comes to shove, magician. I mean, that's what we do. We do tricks. But that also wasn't my goal set. I mean, I'm not. Um, when you look at Siegfried and Roy and Lance Burton and David Copperfield. Um, from the age of seven, all they wanted to do was be magicians. What do you want to do at seven? Um, I think I probably wanted to stay out of prison. You know, I'm from a, a dead factory town in Massachusetts. Was there a big prison there or something? Uh, no, but my dad was a jail guard. He was? Yeah. Uh, at that time in my life, later on, my dad very bravely retired at the age of 50 and became a numismatist after being a jail What's guard. What's a numismatist? Uh, coin dealer. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I like the other word better. <laughs> but I got to, uh, you know, my dad subscribed to numismatic news, uh-huh. so I got to see that word a lot. Uh-huh. So, uh, but wait, so he's a prison guard. Yeah. That's heavy in a, in, a, in a small town, in a okay. kind of a kind of a more of a, a county 
uh, drunk tank. In oh, a so small it wasn't town. like you know. Oh, it wasn't. No, he, he wasn't was oversaying the you know Oz. Charlie, <laughs> it was Charlie Manson yeah, yeah, yeah. going in and guys carving swastikas. Yeah, right, the it was guys, guys he knew probably. Oh, yeah. welcome back, Hank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but all the same, uh, my goals. I think very early on, uh, the show business thing was really tough because uh, the first person I met in show business was me. You know, Teller grew up in Center City, Philadelphia. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Where is that in Massachusetts? Uh, Western Mass. You think of it more as Vermont or New Hampshire, is Mass. Than but not Springfield, sort of yeah, north. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. About, a, about, about, about yeah. an hour. About an hour north. north? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, a town of 20,000. Yeah. And Teller grew up in Center City, Philadelphia, which oh, yeah. means that. He was running spotlight on local productions of the Fantastics when he was twelve. He came from theater. He could be not, well, not really, but there yeah. was theater there. You know, right. uh, I saw. Uh, I think my parents took me to the Music Man on a vacation when I was fifteen. You know, bands didn't play. The nearest they played was Springfield. Did you like the Music Man? Yeah, I did. But I, the idea of being in show business was completely foreign to me. So when I started thinking I wanted to be a writer, I mean, the, the biggest moment when I thought I might be able to go into show business was when uh, I heard um, the first bootleg albums I yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. Which I were they? Because I believe it was a comeback by the Beatles, the yeah. outtakes yeah. from that, and Bob Dylan stealing. Right. And I had believed, and I still in my heart, I think, believe this, even though it's not true. I believe that uh, a record like uh, Highway 61, yeah, that Bob Dylan had every, that an idea came into his head that was every tune, every word, and every chord, and exactly the way it would sound. And there was no editing and no discussion and no accidents. So it was fucking magic. He went in and did it all perfect. <laughs> yeah. And certainly on Sgt. Pepper's, yeah. I didn't believe that they would throw in a backwards tape for no reason. Yeah. Everything meant something. And then I heard these bootleg records, and there were mistakes. <laughs> and there was <laughs> stumbling around. People stopping, going, let's do another one. Let's try that. Try. The word try was <laughs> yeah. in there. Wait a minute. Not, not Bob Dylan trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not the Beatles. Yeah. You know, the not coming in and going, yeah. uh, this is where that roar of the lion goes yeah. in yeah. on Good Morning. Right. It goes in this exact. George, you know, George Martin, come yeah. over here. Yeah. This is, no, not a second yeah. early, not a second later. Yeah. We've talked about this. <laughs> it's all set. <laughs> this is the way the guitar will sound, and these are the notes George will play. Right. And no, no sort of. Uh, right. Experimentation, and I learned because when I was twelve, juggling wasn't a thing college students did. Right. When I you was twelve, it wasn't a hippie thing. Really, it was still a circus thing. Okay, and it was still an outsider thing. And I practiced like a freak, thinking, uh, as as children do, that if I got good enough at something in show business, that the the world talent scouts would come and say, you're a good enough juggler, now you're in show business. Sure, they'd yeah. come to western Massachusetts. Sure. they'd say, who's the good juggler here? Yeah, just you know? driving around, there's one, he's outside in his yard practicing. <laughs> good, yeah. yeah. And, so uh, the thing you learned from the bootlegs was that uh, there was a process. There was there, a process, yeah. yeah. And that whole idea, which Teller took for granted from the first moment he put together a magic trick, he took you know he watched people rehearse yeah and i had no idea that people rehearsed or practiced i thought you were supposed to think of something perfect and then go and execute that perfectly well how how 
how big deep was your fascination with uh, the Carney thing and the, the, the pretty, circus? Pretty, pretty deep, but once again, you have no access. You know, the the fair would come to town once a year. What was the favorite part? Did you go? I was always the ten and one show. You know, yep. which is called colloquially the freak show, but called the ten and one show. Right, on show. I, I was gravitated towards that too, and I feel like we and, missed a, we missed a great heyday of freaks. Yeah, we sure we sure did. But what was uh, what? Is different about the way I tell the story. Whenever I tell the story, and I, you know, there's a monologue we did on Broadway about the Tender One show, and I talked about going into the circus tent and watching the fire eater, and it was the, as Teller would say, the lie that tells the greater truth. That wasn't really what I did. I was really afraid to go in. But what I really did was sit outside and listen to the grind tape over and over again. And what I loved about the freak show was not the freaks on the inside, because I didn't see them. I didn't care about them. But I loved the guy talking about them. Pitching. And I now say, the, well, the grind. Yeah. Not what I now, you know, I now say the guy, but it was actually either Bobby Reynolds or Ward Hall. They were two guys that actually did all those tapes, and I know them both now, and they're both my friends. You know, Thalidomide, the day a woman's world stood still. Yeah. You know, yeah. on the inside, yeah. all of that stuff. And the idea of talking about something uh, insane and beautiful always killed me. I mean, I would listen to those grind tapes. I would stand there out in front of the 10 and 1 show for, you know, it's so easy to exaggerate as you get older, but it, certainly for a child a very long time, 45 minutes. Because there was a, a hypnotic element to it, and it was sort of like it was a, a an entry into like a dark but beautiful world. And also it was someone talking for a living. Yeah. Which is, you know. You really uh, thought that then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I thought then. Like you know, we're trying to go back to, you know, when I was 12, right. and every time you tell a story, you, you don't remember- yeah. The event, you remember the last time you told the story. But there was something so frightening about actually seeing what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also something so, um, uh, when when I finally went in at the age of, you know, 14 or 15, uh, uh, there's a great book. uh, Leslie Fiedler, I think, wrote a book called uh, Freaks, the Myths of Our Secret Selves, which I read in high school. Did you have very special people? Did yeah, you have yeah, that book? Yeah, 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 it's great. But Leslie Fiedler's book was, I, I think I would probably consider it now to be uh, to be uh, pretentious and a little bit bullshitty, but at 17 or what 18. What was the message? Uh, the, the message was, uh, that he stated over and over again, was that what bothered us about freaks was not that they were so different from us, but that they were the same. And when I first went into uh, to see the you know world's smallest couple, I believe it was a husband and wife that were little people, um, they were sitting watching TV, eating an apple. Right. That, I had, yeah. yeah. And because uh, you know that was their gig, they're going to be there fifteen hours a day. You eat an apple, you watch TV. And there's then that you moment. Stand up. Yeah. That, I saw Ronnie and Donnie watch television. Yeah. 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 And I I interrupted the uh, the swamp woman. I. I there was a which is a swamp woman. Well, there was this little woman. And she was like, you know, from the Cajun bio, the like, you know, the dwarf swamp woman. And I walk into this trailer, you know, walk up that ramp, and you look in, and she was making her bed, and she turned around and saw me and went like, Ugh. and she reached into a box and got a snake and went. Eh. <laughs> I felt like I was sorry to bother you. I just <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it, it was really uh, it was. So it was all that kind of idea of showbiz. And so I was uh, juggling all the time and was a professional entertainer in Greenfield, Massachusetts. I would get $5 for going to a nursing home yeah. and doing a juggling show for 10 minutes, you know, with Mike Motion, who ended up being, um, you know, the MacArthur Genius Grant 
greatest juggler of the 20th century. I taught him. He tells the story differently, by yeah. the way. I taught him to juggle. Yeah. And by that, I mean I started a week earlier than he did. Yeah. And then we juggled together all the time and did our shows and so on. And he went on to be uh, uh, as, as important in the juggling world as you can be, which is, you know, damning with faint praise. And What does uh, it mean to be an important juggler? I think it means you get the MacArthur Genius Grant. <laughs> I think it means that, you know the uh, crystal ball thing where people roll them around in their yeah. hands? Yeah. Well, he invented that. Oh, really? That is not an ancient tradition that they're all bringing about. That's a guy so in the, he, 1978. A device that he created. Yeah, and a, uh, w- the way it came about was crazy. I was, uh, We were sharing a house in New Jersey. Uh, I had stopped being partners with Mike Motion and became partners with Teller and a third member. We're, what year? Uh, would have been 74, 75, yeah. 76. And uh, we were trying, and I would go in uh, as often as I could to New York with Teller and with Michael yeah, to the uh, Television Broadcast Museum, and I would just watch all these uh, uh, Vitaphone recordings uh, of acts from vaudeville. I was just fascinated by guys who did one act their whole life, trying to find you know the craziest stuff you could find, and trying to think of stuff, and trying to figure out what angle you could get, come yeah. up with bits. And I went down to uh, Canal Street. One of these, you know, those all those uh, plastic shops and yeah. stuff, and I found these uh, uh, these acrylic crystal balls yeah. that looked just beautiful and looked uh, kind of delicate and dangerous, but were acrylic. You know, you could throw them out of you know out of, out of the third story window; yeah. wouldn't yeah. do anything. So I bought like five of them, and I brought them back uh, to uh, where we uh, where we would practice. And I just juggled them every way possible, and I talked with Teller forever, and what if we did something with smoke, and what if we did this, and just a total, total dead end. Yeah. Got nowhere, and just left him over there in the corner, and Mike Mosher came over and said, mind if I monkey around with those acrylic balls? And then he invents this whole, uh, what's called now contact juggling. Yeah. It used to be called Mike Motion's Act. Now it's called Contact Jump. And Juggler, what does that entail? Where they take like one ball and roll it over their hand and up oh, their right, arm. Right. And it's always done with like a crystal acrylic ball. Yeah. And, uh, and that's because I couldn't get an idea. <laughs> that's, that's how I changed the world of juggling uh, is I was unable to get an idea. Right. The genius behind the genius was the guy that bought the balls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just left them laying around. Yeah, couldn't get an idea. Now, where did you do a lot of street performing? Uh, yeah, look, tremendous amount. Yeah, where in, uh... I had this, I had all these kinds of. Um, I like to perform where it was illegal. Yeah, I just thought that was important, you know, because I believe. What does that mean? Corporate space or no, no, no? I just mean on on the streets of like Philadelphia. Okay, like in San Francisco, you get a permit. And you sign this thing, and you sign up, yeah. and you can perform from three fifteen to three thirty at this particular wharf on this stage. Yeah. I like to be in, uh, uh, you know, uh, South Street, uh, New Market, Philadelphia, where the police arrested people for doing uh, street performing. And I also did Renaissance festivals in street performing. I made so much fucking money street performing. You know, I had. I, I had a really good 12 minutes, and more important than that, I juggling. had a re, yeah, juggling and talking. Yeah. And I had a really good collection hunk, you know, and I had a really good crowd gathering. Yeah. And I would play places where there were rich people, and I also dressed as expensively as possible because I thought I want them to be embarrassed to give me a dollar, have them give me a 20. So what do you mean, like, so no tie-dye? 
uh, no tie dye, no uh, no hippie stuff, none of that stuff. I tried to look uh, so that they would feel like they were really seeing a show. Oh wow! And I made so much money. I was um, I was nineteen, yeah, twenty, yeah, and I would make a uh, couple three grand in a weekend uh, in cash. On the street, yeah, and I remember going to an accountant. No, and you were not a druggie, so yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's where it's going. Yeah, I would went to an accountant, and I said, you know, um, I'm a street juggler. Yeah, and I have to pay taxes on this. Um, you know, I'm making six figures. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, I told them told them uh, what I made. Yeah, and said it's all cash and it's all on the street. And the accountant said to me. Um, if you declare this as a street juggler, you will go to jail as a drug dealer. Nobody will believe it. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure I believe it. <laughs> you're not making this much money. You're doing it some way illegally, and you're trying to launder it and pay your taxes on it. And uh, I will be no part of that. I suggest you declare whatever you got paid from actual checks and leave the street money out of this. And I said, well, that means I'm making like 15 grand a year. He said, pay taxes on that. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. So it's the advice of one person. And, and he's probably, still your accountant. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably very bad advice. Yeah. But so all the uh, early stuff, you mm-hmm. know, Teller and I would um, street perform, make all this money in cash, buy light rigs, rent theaters, work on our show, and do that. So the street performing really did uh, support the, you know, trying to do a real theatrical show and i love street performing and probably would have um never stopped except for the incredible damage it was doing my voice because you're screaming i was really loud yeah you know i'm big and i'm loud and i was just blowing my voice out completely yeah i remember you were the voice of comedy central when i was actually on comedy central yes i said your name many many times (laughs) is that weird many many times some guy just put a thing up on youtube of me doing some sort of thing on Comedy Central from 1993, and I was like, oh my God, someone infused personality into that man. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that young, lost person. Yeah, that was the old days. So now, how much does, like, this, uh, because it seems like you're pretty well known now, you know, for your, for your uh, view on uh, religion and on politics, but it, before I get into that, let's talk about filth. I, um... <laughs> I ran into Al Goldstein, probably, I don't know, about maybe eight years ago when he briefly worked at uh, the cigar store. Yeah, yeah. And then he brought you up, and I guess he lost that job because he people would just come in to talk to Al Goldstein, and he was smoking a lot of cigars. And he yeah. said you were sort of taking care of him. Yeah, I uh, I found out that Al was, uh, well, he was he was in a homeless shelter. Well, what was your relationship before that, and, and Screw Magazine uh, in general, and what he represented? He was a hero of mine. Uh, I think that the uh, Goldstein versus Topeka case... Uh, is a really important freedom of speech case. And Al went through that, and anybody else would have just copped and walked. Yeah. And he didn't. Yeah. And he didn't for, like, everybody who's a hero, he did it for really base reasons. He did it because, you know, for attention. Yeah. And to be, you know, he would... But that doesn't matter. You know, uh, all the people that make real breakthroughs, especially... In uh, in First Amendment cases and Fourth Amendment cases, uh, you can't do it for the pure reasons because it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. You have to have all sorts of other baggage to do it. And I also remember um, my mom uh, and I. My mom had uh, she never said hell or damn. My Was she mom, religious. Uh, she she died 
an atheist. Um, the whole story of that is in is in, in my book. book. And my dad, they were Congregationalist, uh, First Congo Church, First Congregationalist Church, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, she wasn't uh, particularly religious, no Bible thump or anything, but a very, very proper New England woman. Mm-hmm. And I never swore in front of her. Mm-hmm. You know, when she would see me, uh, when she would uh, read the interview with me in Playboy, she said to me, you know, it's very odd. They have to add all this obscenity, but I guess they add that to fit in with their magazine. <laughs> and I said, no, mom, I really talk like that, just not around you. And she said, uh, I guess they have to add all that stuff. <laughs> you know, the Rolling Stone interview and stuff. She did. So I remember- Would uh, not process it. <laughs> on Tom Snyder, yeah. you know, uh, Al Goldstein was on. And I guess it would have been after I had left home. It must have been back visiting. It must have been uh, in the 70s at some time. Late 70s. I, yeah, something like that. And Al Goldstein was on talking about Screw Magazine and talking about people trying to stop him and yeah. going on and on and on. And uh, I remember uh, my mom asking me about Screw Magazine. Yeah. And I said, you know, it's pornography and it's available. And she said, uh, is it given to anybody against their will? <laughs> And I said, no, you have to pay for it. She said, well, then why are they talking about it? Couldn't even cross her mind. The idea of censorship was so foreign to her. Mm-hmm. As long as you didn't force it into her house and blast what her on the walls. Did it make? She didn't. And she also thought it was so easy to avoid. Yeah. She'd done it perfectly her whole life. And so I was very aware of Al Goldstein, the red screw a bit. Yeah. Um, well, there wasn't much to read in Screw, but yeah. uh, I liked the idea of it, and I and I met him. You know, he came to our show um, off Broadway. You know, eighty six, I guess, and it was funny because coincidentally, it's only a you know less than two hundred, fewer than two hundred seats, like one hundred and fifty, sixty seats on our off Broadway show, and it happened to be that night that Al Goldstein was in the audience and Gloria Steinem was in the audience. They both happened to be there. Did you know that before the show? Um, Yes. Would you address that on stage? Uh, no. But uh, we always hung out during intermission with the audience and afterwards. Yeah. And Gloria Steinem was, you know, here, and Al Goldstein was there. And I walked past Gloria Steinem to go over to Al Goldstein, introduce myself, and shake my hand. And that blew his mind. Yeah. And uh, What, because he iced uh, Gloria? Well, not because I, I didn't really ice her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just chose to speak yeah, to yeah. Al before Gloria. Yeah. And that, made a, that was a big deal to him. And his son was at that time uh, uh, was getting into magic, Jordan, and uh, his son was like fifteen or sixteen, and I spent a little time. And then Al was so incredibly generous. He took everyone out to Le Cirque. He spent thousands of dollars on uh, on dinner. He had these uh, Sunday brunches that everybody was invited to. He'd pick up the tab for everything, and uh, he'd come out to to Vegas and, you know, insist on picking up the tab. And then I just, uh, friend is perhaps too, too strong a word, but he was a hero of mine for the political stuff he'd done. He was always very kind to me. And then I found out he was in a um, homeless shelter and got together with uh, Ratso. Uh, Sloman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Ratso had told me, Al was having a really hard time. And we made this deal where I would put up the money if Ratso would do the work and get him into an apartment and kind of walk through him. And he's now um, 
He's now in kind of a home situation in, in Brooklyn. A nursing I heard home. he was in the hospital. Is that true? He was in the, out of the hospital, now in kind of a uh, nursing home type situation. And Ratso and I watch over him. And I always, you know, I always say to Ratso, you know, <laughs> you are really, really in trouble when the only two people that help you out are Penn and Ratso. <laughs> when you're down to that level that you go, these are the two guys I'm counting on, it's Penn and it's Ratso, yeah. things have really gone badly for you. <laughs> well, I think it's important to, to you know, cause I think a lot of people forget that there was a time where, you, because the, 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 the culture has become so pornified on some mm-hmm. level, and that you know in the 70s, so much of those First Amendment things were around porn. Uh, uh, well, yeah. Would, would you, for, First Amendment is always porn. Yeah. Fourth Amendment is always drug dealers. Right. And that's that's what you're going to deal Amendment's with. Second Amendment's always guns. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and Third Amendment, you know, uh, housing soldiers in uh, in in private homes during peacetime doesn't come up. You know, <laughs> people always say, you it know, during <laughs> your during your show, yeah. you 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 know, you talk about the First, Second, and Fourth Amendment. Why don't you do a whole show that's all ten amendments of the Constitution? I said because we're not going to get a bit on three. You know, the Supreme Court can't even do ten minutes on the Third Amendment. No one has Third Amendment material. Any guy who talks about how he's you know he's a comic that does political stuff. Yeah. Hey, let me hear your Third Amendment, Hunk. That's what I'd like to hear. You know, tell me hear about what you think about soldiers being housed in private homes during peacetime. You got you got a hunk on that? What is it? Is it just me? Am yeah. I crazy? Is it just me? Was, or how, the- when are these soldiers going to get out of our houses? <laughs> I mean, I, I've had this guy in my basement for six months. There's no war on. How is it my responsibility? If there were a war on, I'd, I'd be, be fine with it. But now I got to house the guy because of the fucking constant yeah, I don't. I haven't heard that bit. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen. So, do you think that you know the soul of your uh, your uh, libertarianism came from your mother's uh, lack of understanding of why there was an issue around filth? Uh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, certainly. There's a uh, there was an attitude with my parents. The uh, the the which is you know uh, every part of America claims this. As their part, it's a Southern thing. It's a New England right. thing. It's a, it, but um, it's a Midwestern thing. Yeah. But the idea of do anything you want, just don't monkey with me. You know, uh, was so strong in my household and my mom's aversion, and my dad's aversion to anything that was even slightly like gossip, uh, anything that would be telling someone else what to do. I mean, that was an absolute. I mean, my parents never had uh, a drink of alcohol. Never had any drugs. Uh, I, I've never had a sip of alcohol or any drug, you know, but they would never talk about it. They would never say so and so shouldn't be drinking, you know, that never came up. Never a discussion of someone being a drunk, never anything. Unless, uh, Just this. They shouldn't be drinking in our house yeah. next time. It was more like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, there was an idea. I used to do a bit about the libertarians about. Uh, you know how it's you know you know, you can do whatever you want just do it don't do it in my yard yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> get the junkies off of the grass don't it doesn't frighten the horses yeah you know uh, and uh, that that really uh, I think that's where the, uh, the 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 heart and soul of it come you know you you can't be you can't trace this stuff back you know when people when people explain. Uh, I mean, there's there's been studies that are done that say that the uh, the, the liberal conservative, you know, that whole thing uh, may be chemical. 
You yeah. know, it may be just part of the brain that's just built in. What the two so, sides of you know what the the nurturing thing and the tough love thing. Yeah, that... well, the the, the it's, it's it's broken down more into uh, uh, how 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 was it uh, how was it seen, but on on whether. Uh, how much control you want to have over other people. And it, it ties in with that adventuresome thing and all of that. And they're able to do uh, some goofy stuff where they can do brain scans and tell a little bit of people's politics. Which and you is buy that? Very confusing. I don't know. I'm no. just saying that. Jury's uh, out. I just know that uh, every time someone says, you know, you know, why don't you do drugs or drink? Uh, they all, the reason I have to always explain that is they always want to make my father and mother into alcoholics, you know, and see this horror when I was a child. No one wants to accept the opposite. You know, they want to have some traumatic moment. They want to have me be AA or something. And so I try to... Why do they want to hang that on you, necessarily? I think because it's just the story that's told most. You know, it's well, the I think story there, there, there's something interesting about... Uh, you know, and uh, the the atheist disposition in general, in that uh, you're there's a practicality to it and an ability to deal with uh, with uh, the the fact that uh, you know shit to, is not pretty and it probably won't work out and there's a lot of pain in the world. So there's a you know uh, there's there's a way of dealing with that personally, which is a certain element of uh, control. I guess so. You know, that's that's such an odd. Uh such an odd thing there is this once again the story especially in the u.s it's not it's not the international story but kind of the american story is that atheists are bitter you know one of the first questions you'll you'll get if you're an out-of-the-closet atheist is you know i guess you were really uh fucked over by christians or they treated you badly you went to catholic school or they'll go the other way and say something really bad must have happened in your life and uh in my experience with uh with hardcore atheists uh it tends to be if your family was uh so perfect that it made leave it to beaver look dysfunctional uh, that puts you on that road more. I really because think, it's a lie. I really no, I, no, no, not at all. Not oh. even close to that. Oh. because it's the absolute truth. If your love from your parents is unconditional and constant, yeah, and they just nurture you properly, uh, properly, yeah, uh, then uh, a lot of the you know you become twelve foot tall and bulletproof. Right, you the know. need to uh, to uh, to, re- to to somehow have somebody. Uh, or something bigger than you salve that pain yeah, of it's, being... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just not there. I mean, right. I, 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 when people talk to me about, you know, eternal love of Jesus Christ, I just go, Jesus Christ going one-on-one with my mom, my mom wins. Yeah. You know, my mom's love was so unconditional, so pure, and provable. Provable with apple pie, provable with smiles, provable with being there for me, Every single time I needed her, and you were you were went into show business, and that's no small uh, order for a parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, yeah, very hard. You know, yeah, my yeah. dad, my mm. dad, very difficult. You know, yeah. My dad never met anyone in show business. Yeah. So from his point of view, when I said I wanted to be in show business, it was like saying, "I think I'm Johnny Carson." Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what he actually said yeah, to me. Yeah. So you think you're Johnny Carson? <laughs> you're going to go from here in Greenfield and host the Tonight Show? Yeah. I said no, but there are other people in show business. I'm going to juggle on the street. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, okay. He didn't, he didn't understand that at all. You yeah. Know? No idea. And my dad also, you know, he 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 did not finish high school. So well, he, that's a fear they have for he you. Firmly believed 
that everything that didn't go perfectly in his life was because of not going to college. So when I tested well and did well in school, my dad just, you know, all the money went aside to Penn will go to whatever college he wants. When I chose not to go to college or to go to clown college. You went to clown college? <laughs> I went to Ringley Brothers Barnum. Did he pay for it? Order at the clown college. Didn't cost anything. It didn't? No. Um, How do you go to Clown College for free? Uh, Ringling Brothers Barn and Bear, the greatest show on earth, pays for it. In exchange for you saying Ringling Brothers Barn and Bear, the greatest show on earth, Clown College, for the rest of your life, and never saying Clown College. Did you have to circus. audition for it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It is, uh, uh, yeah, it's very, very difficult to get So into. you know how to do broad clowning? Not well. I mean, that's one of the things I learned at Clown College was that I wasn't good at it. I would get laughs verbally and not physically. But I took makeup classes. I took, you know. Did you pick a face? Uh, yeah, I have, I have, I have my my own face and did all. Do you of ever that. go back to your face? No, I haven't ever put on. I haven't put on clown makeup. I'm not really sure I know how to use uh, clown white anymore. But I went very seriously. I mean, very ser- seriously, and 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 worked hard. And it was uh, it was my first time. I, I was the youngest person in my my class. Yeah. I was 18, I guess, or 17. And uh, it must have been 18. And um, Is there any affectation to it, or was it all sort of practical? Very practical. Yeah. Very nuts and bolts. Very, uh, very, uh, uh, yeah, as far from pretentious as possible. Were there any Just, pretentious clowns within the school where you're like, oh, fuck that guy? Well, you know, there's, it's 30 people. Yeah, so okay. it's a small group okay. of people. But it was the first time uh, I had met... And this is, again, being a small-town mouse, you know. It's the first time I met funny people. Right. And that's that's an astonishing thing, you know. I don't know anything about sports, but I know that uh, with sports, the guy who plays professional basketball in his high school was also the best football player and the pitcher and track and field. And the guy that we hate. Yeah, but if they're good. <laughs> so, you know, when you, when you have someone that's um, – that's in comedy, yeah. and you go back to their high school, well, they were also the best actor, and they were the best writer, yeah. and they were everything. And then when you get out, you get into people that are much better at that. They were also the best looking. Right. You know, then, they've, then they're a character actor in L.A. They're not even close to good looking, yeah. but in their town they were. So, you know, a lot of them ended up insurance salesmen. <laughs> exactly. But I, you know, I was in Greenfield, Massachusetts, so I was, uh, I was the funniest person in Greenfield Public High School. You know, there were there were 300 students in the whole high school. You I was the one funniest. Of the tallest person. I was the tallest, sure. Yeah. I was the tallest. I was the funniest. And I had the, the most longest popular tail. and the jocks no, liked you. No, not everybody. the most popular, but, no, but could you, a little bit creepy. You were a little creepy. But when I got to clown college, it was just this incredible thing because everybody there was funnier than me. And, you know, everybody there, if you said Lenny Bruce, you didn't have to explain for 10 minutes afterwards, who Lenny Bruce was. If you the said... The clowns knew who Lenny Bruce was. Well, no, they're, they're all into... It's the sure, same thing. Comedy, you know, yeah. the, they're into comedy. Yeah. So they all know every stand-up person right. and every... You know, they know everything. Yeah. Because that's their life. Yeah. And they all know everything. So, you know, you would mention... You, you know, you'd say... Well, I remember this... Uh, I remember seeing the Smothers Brothers, and they did this bit, and everybody in the room could do it. Wow. You know? And you'd mention Albert Brooks, who was just hitting sure. them, and everybody knew the whole first album. So it was album. all one big business, uh, on some level. Funny oh, sure, people sure. are funny people. Exactly. But uh, 
I had never experienced that. Every single person I talked to about uh, you know the similarities between Lenny Bruce and Tommy Smothers, yeah, you had to explain. Oh, that's the guy we saw on TV once. Right. It hadn't. It had no spoken to their heart, you know. Right. And uh, anybody, so you were a comedy nerd in, in high school? Uh, no, not really. What I kind was, of creepy were you? I was. Uh, I was. Uh, I wanted to be Camus. I wanted to move oh. to France and write so really serious stuff. So you're a little pretentious? A little pretentious? Oh, incredibly pretentious. You know? Long hair, kind of oh, dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. dark. And I was the, uh, I don't know why I didn't win a Nobel Prize for this, because I got the idea of fucking smart girls, mm-hmm. which no one else had that idea. No one else. Everybody else was trying to fuck the cheerleaders. I found the girl with the long straight hair in the baggy sweater yeah. who was reading Henry Miller. Yeah. Now, she's already read about anal sex. Yeah. All you've got to do is say, do you want to? <laughs> Anna East Nin has taught her everything about fucking. She's so I was fucking all the smart girls. So I got laid constantly in high school right. and beaten up for being a faggot because I had long hair. So I got beat up for being a faggot and got laid all the time. Well, you got to go with your wounds to the smart girl and say, "I'm so misunderstood." Absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, getting beat up in front of a smart girl, you can't do better. You know, you cannot do better than getting bird. punched in the punched in the face by a jock who's smaller than you yeah. that you could beat up but choose not to yeah. because you're such a pacifist yeah. and he hits you in the face and calls you a faggot you are going to get your cock sucked within three minutes you're not even going to have to really get to the car yeah, yeah. you know in the park next to the high school sure, she's sure. she's going to say you know yeah. come in my face yeah, you know? yeah yeah um that was my genius there but uh Whatever I wrote, you know, I'd always try to write this really pretentious stuff, and I would read all the most pretentious stuff possible, and then I would write stuff, you know, my creative writing class and so on. To blow minds primarily? Or uh, did you- no, it, it would always end up getting laughs. I, you know, I, oh, yeah. the, 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 you were being serious. And- no, no, I wasn't being oh, serious, yeah. but as I wrote these serious yeah. ideas from my heart, I always wanted to put a joke in there, mm-hmm. and every time I was... Uh, carrying on yeah. about uh, the stuff I believe strongly, it always kind of was in a it was in a funny way. And uh, at some point, uh, I just kind of gave up and said, well, it doesn't seem I can do two minutes without putting a joke in. Yeah. I guess there are other people in comedy who also have serious thoughts. <laughs> I'll look into that a little more. Yeah, all you know, of us. Look at, look at that. You know, yeah. you know uh, Lenny Bruce, he was a comedian, and yet there was stuff he was talking about. Sure. So I got down to clown college, and here were people that were going to drop their pants and fall down, and they knew everything. And they had all the same pretentious thoughts, and they cared about the arts. So all this stuff is things that anybody else that went to like a performing arts high school, they got at the age of thirteen, or right. Fourteen, but it's a whole new world. Anyone for you. who was from a city, right? You know, if you were if you were from any city, then one trip to the library and you bump into somebody there, and they're from another, or if you had a high school of a thousand people, yeah. Any of those things give you the information that there are other people like you. Right. Uh, but you're isolated. Greenfield doesn't. Yeah. And also, I think now the internet gives you that information. I mean, yeah, for the, better or for worse. I think for better. Yeah. But I think You that, can find it. It's, it's up to you yeah. to decide whether it's bullshit or not. Yeah, but, but yeah. we know, uh, when Frank Zappa had on the back of his record, you know, do not listen to this song until you've read Kafka's In the Penal Colony, I went down to the library and read all of the Kafka stuff before I listened to that cut because oh, Frank Zappa had told me to. Did you, you ever know? tell Zappa that you yes, did I that? Yes, I did. And I what did. did he say? I did. He, 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 you know, he was, he was flattered. 
and said, you know, you were the one I was doing the records for. You know what I mean? No one else, no one else actually did that. You know, you're the guy because Zappa was also everything to me. Was he? Because it's a very, that's a very specific thing. The Zappa catalog. Yeah, it is. And uh, but Zappa is a really good for a juggler who's interested in comedy. Uh, you've got that combination of caring about nothing except practice and being perfect, which is the juggler part, part. Yeah. and then also caring about being funny. And Frank Zappa had chops. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. He really did know music. He wasn't a goofball doing comedy. And it's so funny because so many of his chops, you know, outside of the improvisational stuff, was like sort of doo-wop. Like, you know, oh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. It's like it's weird the spine of a lot of Zappa stuff is really this kind of, you know, yeah. 50s thing. Absolutely. And then you add to that the Verez yeah, yeah. and the Stockhausen yeah. and the and the, you know the Stravinsky, yeah. you know what I mean when he when I read an article that said that part of, you know, Firebird was in Lumpy Gravy, well then I had to listen to the Stravinsky stuff. You know, so what I really had was um, you know, in in, in Greenfield public library yeah i have you know frank zappa telling me from la you know this is what yeah a uh, a, a fan of my music should do you're a zappa nerd yeah i was a zappa nerd and you know and also you add to that a little randy newman a little bit of martin i just Malt. listened to randy newman yesterday how the <laughs> fuck is that even possible i listened to guilty yesterday yeah that fucking song uh, well you know the the one that you know, God's song and right uh, and, and good and, fun. That's a funny song. Yeah, really funny. But some of his weird poetic tangents, like um, like what is it? Last night I had a dream. Yeah, I was in it. And you were that, that's yeah. like kind of dark. Yeah, with, it, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's great stuff. There, there was a. I remember a um, an interview, an interview. You know, nineteen seventy two. Yeah, uh, around. Rolling Stone. And, you know, I've never never checked on this. It's been with me all these years. I've never gone back and checked. I don't know how much of this is right. But an interview with Randy Newman where he starts, well, the interviewer, yeah. uh, doing a feature story on him, says the first question the um, uh, he a Randy Newman asked him was, do you believe in God? And the interviewer said yes. And Randy Newman said, then you cannot understand anything that I will say in this entire interview. And at the end of the interview, the way the guy, the guy spends three or four days with them. It's not really an interview, a story. And at the end of the feature, he says, as I was leaving, Randy Newman said, do you still believe in God? And I said, yes. And Randy said, please put in the article that you haven't understood anything. <laughs> uh, now, I don't remember that that's yeah, accurate. Sure. Okay, this is, fine. this is fine. 35 years yeah. later. And uh, being um, the lone person interested in show business in the whole school, in the whole town, and the lone person talking about atheism all the time you know you even can, in high school even in high school yeah most importantly in high school um you can imagine how important uh martin mull randy newman uh frank zappa were to me you know john lennon uh and the beatles and and bob dylan were always so um all over the place and a little bit confusing mystical and what poetic they, what, what they believe yeah. religiously right but the people who were just brass tacks you know just boom there is no god and then someone like martin mull you know who is uh, a good friend of mine now but when i met him it was like you know it was impossible you know not to cry because martin mull was well educated articulate deep um uh, atheist and funny. Yeah, 
he was all those things. I mean, new art, you know, he's more an artist now than a comedian, but knew all that stuff inside out and musical. All that stuff together was just, uh, oh, there are people out there that can live the life I want to live. Right, without this this weird kind of uh, uh, ominous obstacle of of God. Well, getting back to your dad, obviously he eventually accepted your drive because you worked hard, you made money, and I imagine there was a moment there where you said— Oh, very big—you know, my dad was still saying—this is is a a hunk of Woody Allen's— act you know it just happens to be also true for me my dad was saying you know almost when i got on broadway well you should still consider going back to college yeah well they're scared for you is what it is uh but then uh i uh i i was um i did some stuff at mit in the 80s and uh, they made me a visiting scholar. Uh, what, is, what do you mean, stuff? Uh, Media Lab at MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked on some uh, on some uh, music stuff and some media stuff, and I was hanging out there. And then, at some level, I was connected with MIT. And my dad, being from Massachusetts, yeah, that kind of hangs over. That's everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, everything. Sure. So my dad was then able to find a way to say, you know, my son didn't go to college. But he lectures at MIT. Oh, that's great. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you know, and then dad, dad came around completely. But it's very hard, uh, especially in comedy, to talk about your dad being worried right. about you. Yeah. Um, without making it look like uh, your your dad wasn't supportive. You know, my dad was completely supportive. He was just worried. Yeah, that's that's what it always is. It is always that, is. It does not fit into their understanding of how people work. But it also felt that way to me. Yeah. You know, there's so many people that say, you know, my dad never never wanted me to do it. But to me, he was completely supportive. Just a little worried. Sure. You know, yeah. wouldn't it be nice? You're doing great stuff. And, and you know, had a lot of trouble, um, uh, as much as he loved me, had a lot of trouble understanding what I did. You know, my dad, I, I love Even when this. he saw you work? Oh, yeah. He would see, he saw me on Broadway. And, uh... But he must have been entertained. Oh, yes. He yeah, loved it. Yeah. But what I'm saying is afterwards, he would say, you know, I, I like it when you do a little more juggling in the show because then the audience knows you can do something. And I, I know they're impressed by how much you've memorized and how much you say, but when you're talking, if you do some of that hard juggling stuff, yeah. it reminds yeah. the audience yeah. that you practice. Why, yeah, right. Why didn't you engage in your skill set? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I got to tell you a, a story about uh, about my mom. That's yeah. one of my uh, one of my favorite stories. Um, off Broadway, we we came out to New York. We yeah. go off Broadway and. Um, we do our opening night show where that night you're going to stay up all night and read the interv- the review in the New York Times. This is back when that still mattered, the yeah. late, late 80s. The New York Times review made you or broke you. Right. And my, my mom and dad and Teller's mom and dad were, were at the show, opening night. And then afterwards they're at the party. And, of course, there's all the investors there who have you know not a lot of money by Broadway standards, but by off-Broadway standards, you know, it's probably a million and a half bucks to put on the Penn and Teller show. That's some large green to be yeah. hanging in the balance. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some, there's some cats sitting around yeah. who really want that review to be good. Sure. <laughs> you yeah. know, and the producer, uh, Richard Frankel, who's now the biggest producer in New York, this was his first project. Mm-hmm. So this really made it, would make or break him. And we're sitting around. And my mom and dad, uh, my mom was 45 when I was born. So my mom was much older than you expect uh, uh, my mom to be. 
Uh, so my mom was uh, at that point in her 70s. And my dad. And they ended up sitting next to the producer. Mm-hmm. And the review comes out at 2 a.m. You know, the person's waiting in Times Square and runs over to the restaurant where we are. And one of the producers, you know, reads it on the way and decides that it's good. It was actually, you know, a blowjob that was going to, yeah. you know, get us going. And uh, he decides he's going to read it in front of everybody. So once the, guy, once the guy stands up to read, you know it's pretty good. Yeah, you know? yeah, sure. And he stands up and reads the whole thing. And the producer, of course, has this, – this means his children can go to private school. Yeah. It changes his whole life, this one review. Yeah. Uh, more than it does our lives, actually, because sure. we were you know, we were carny trash. We yeah. still work. Yeah. And uh, he finishes the review, and he turns to my mom, who's the closest person to him, yeah. and says what he thinks is the right thing to say to a mom. He says, uh, aren't you – doesn't that make you proud of your son? And my mother said to him, what is wrong with you? I've been proud of him from the moment he was born. I don't need the New York Times to be proud of my son. What's wrong with you? That's her reaction. To which he said, no, no, I just, I just, I just, (laughs) what I really meant, Mrs. Gillette, is I'm going to make an awful lot of money. That's what I was trying to say to you. I wanted to kind of high five you and say, I'm going to make money, but I was trying to be more polite. He doesn't say that, but of course, that's what he's thinking. And the whole next day, my mom doesn't talk about the review in the New York Times. All she talks about is, can you imagine someone saying, you'd be made proud by a review in the New York Times? I was proud of you. The first, mo- I said, I know, mom, I know, and he knows, and yeah. he's been proud of his children from the first moment, and we all are. He just spoke a little bit clumsily in a moment of excitement. She said, "Well, the review is wonderful, yeah. and it is wonderful that you'll be playing here for a long time, and we certainly are relieved." But it's the use of the word "proud." I, said, I know, I know, mom, you've been proud of me since the day I was born. But that is, you know, that's the kind of. Yeah. Um, Total acceptance we're talking about. Well, it's interesting from that, you know, that that point of view of the true unconditional love and proper parenting uh, and a lack of, you know, infusing religion into you. Because, like, I grew up, my parents are are both nuts, and I wouldn't say that they were perfect parents, but I was never taught how to use God. You know, it was never a concept that was put into any sort of action. Right. So now, like, I talk about it in my act a lot. I, you know, it's not... Uh, that that I don't believe or I do believe, it's that I honestly don't give a shit <laughs> one way or the other, and, yeah. which is interesting because I say it's interesting when you say that to religious people because it sort of baffles them for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, and and when you say it to atheists, they say, well, you, you don't want to fight? <laughs> so, well, yeah, it's, it's actually, you know, it's, uh, it, that's something that I believe is, I, I do think it's an important it's an important issue. And people that say they don't care, uh, do baffle me. You know, it's not it's not so much you want to fight, but it's just um, you know you're 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 making a decision on what world you want to live in. You know, and there's uh, uh, it's the it's the deep problem. It's a deep problem with the title of the book. God, God no, no, is that you know uh, it's not really about that. It's like it's like the show bullshit. You know, we did the show bullshit, and the title is stated in the negative for comedic purposes. Well, I think I'm. T- I think it's a cop out. I mean, on on some level, w- w- my position. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and I and I agree with you because I, I think that what you're fighting is not you know necessarily whether there's a god or not, but the power that that idea has over people. Right, but you're also you're also talking you know. Th- 
if the book, if my book were titled properly, if bullshit were titled properly, it wouldn't be called bullshit, which is the comedic title. Yeah. It would be called a celebration of science and this life. Right. You know, and this would be called, uh, you know, the whole world is enough. I mean, that's that's really the point of the book is that uh, I can look into my children's faces and I don't need everlasting life. Yeah. Who could need more than that? And how does that not get boring? Yeah. Everlasting life. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's just uh, yeah. how can you how can you breathe a breath of air? How can you see uh, a one you know hear a wonderful piece of music, see a beautiful piece of art, feel the love of your friends and family, and go, yeah, but this is just a veil of tears. <laughs> Beyond this is the real half. You go, what the fuck? I can understand if you're at Auschwitz, you know, and you kind of go, uh, we gotta get something. This has got to no, be. I get it. We gotta get. Yeah. But living in the United States of America yeah. and having. Uh, Children who love you and having friends that you can hang out with, going to see great movies, and then you go, yeah, but the world beyond is so much well, better. That's an amazing, Fuck you. Exactly. How greedy are you, you cocksucker? You've been given everything. You have won the most amazing lottery that has ever been given. In the history the chances of, of you being yeah. alive are zero. Just point one that you happen to be here and you won and you're here now shut the fuck up yeah just enjoy it and suck well, it well, in and be nice to people but what an amazing bill of goods you know when you talk about the grind at, at the beginning and the pitch yeah. to to basically convince i mean the biggest trick that that they did was say like you know everything is going to be better when you're dead right <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's an amazing. amazing fucking thing to to sell people, and it and once you've got that, you have you have condoned complete control over yeah, that person. And, and all the pain in the world you've condoned, yeah, and you've condoned slavery, you've right. condoned everything because it'll all be made okay later. But and, they exploit people who are in pain. The people the the people yeah. that do that. Now, how much of your experience as uh, a student of illusion and an illusionist, you know, sort of sets you off to, to dismember these dangerous illusions. Well, you know, what you learn, uh, I mean, the, one of the big secrets of magic is that you never lie to people. You let people lie to themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, you manipulate the information. And once someone gets the idea themselves, uh, once they feel that they've gotten the idea, there's no knocking them off it. You know, uh, if you say, um, you know, uh, we're going to catch these bullets in our teeth at the end of the show, uh, then you got to do a lot of convincing. We never say that. You know, we let them say they're doing that. And I think that with religion, a lot of that is 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 you ram it down their throats, but you also allow them to feel like there's a personal connection. You know, that idea of... Um, Religion is so good at taking credit for things that don't need to have credit taken for them. You just take the beauty and say, well, how could that beauty be there? And all of a sudden it has to be something else above that is just a, an amazing trick. I mean, that's a, that's a rhetorical trick that's, that's, that's just so perfect. Well, do you hold, uh, do you hold people responsible? I mean, you know, when, when you like you here, we're in Vegas. And, you know, my experience here, you know, when I come here and I perform here, you know, obviously I'm, I'm working in a lounge. Sure. You know, I you know, I'm just an option that you know people get dragged into. <laughs> and I, I find myself you know, with a contempt 
for for humanity that borders on misanthropic because I I actually said on stage last night I said I, I'm proud to be performing for the for the troops of sadness <laughs> that well you know Johnny Rotten said about Berlin yeah a cheap holiday in other people's misery and yeah you, you can get that in Vegas yeah yeah that do you do you find yourself being misanthropic or do you, does this love that you're talking about extend to everybody i really don't i mean one of the things that uh i have done in my whole career is used uh volume and aggression to conceal the fact that i am the most pollyanna person that ever existed i really do like people i really think people are good which is one of the things that is the basic of libertarianism and atheism is this real deep belief that people are good. But how do you how do you reconcile as uh, a libertarian uh, the fact that there are hundreds and thousands of people that are not going to be able to rise up and and adapt? Uh, how, how do I reconcile that? Yeah, because I, it seems like need, there's a you disre- need to help them. Okay. I mean, they need they need to be helped, right. and they need to be helped by everybody. And my real question, you know, I was just on, uh, I was just on um, one of these shows, uh, you know, hawking my book with Jerry Springer, and they were talking about uh, Malcolm Forbes saying that the super rich should be taxed more, and I and Jerry Springer was saying, you know, I should be ta- I Jerry Springer should be taxed a lot more, and I said, why don't you and Malcolm Forbes just Give your money to the government. No one's stopping you. Just do it. If you think you should be taxed more, there's a real easy solution. You just give that money in. And uh, the reason is that you think you can do more good for people with your individual money than you think the government can do. You think it's more efficient. Malcolm Forbes thinks that Bill Gates can do more to stop polio and malaria than the government can. That's why he's choosing to put his money there. And I think that there's this real mistake uh, of libertarianism where people think that if you don't want the government to do something, you don't think it should be done. That there's some sort of Darwinian social thing happening, let those people suffer. No. Uh, when people ask me that, you know, who's going to help the poor? My answer is me and you. And let's do it. Let's do it now. Do you know somebody? I remember uh, I was on. Do you? I was on. Yes. I was on Pierce Morgan, you know, and he said uh, one in seven people are on food stamps. What does that mean to you? I said that means that six in seven people can help them. (laughs) You know, that's (laughs) that's the math. It's really easy math. And he said, how do we help these people? And I said, give them money. (laughs) Give them food. Do it this afternoon. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. It needs to be the government. I said, no, do it. You. He said, how do we do that? I said, it's really easy. <laughs> it's really easy but, but to help then, But then you still have the, uh, I, I guess the idea then is like, who is going to do that? I mean, Me? it's a nice idea. You are. Yeah. But you can't speak for anybody else. Where's I, the, I, I uh, know a lot of people. Where's I mean, the libertarian collective what, of people who are out there going to feed Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates. Sure. You I and mean, Bill Gates. Uh, Bill, but, and everybody in between. But, and Malcolm Forbes and everybody in between. They're doing shit. You know, they're doing stuff like crazy, and they're doing it more efficiently. I mean, the, the, the world governments had given up on polio. This is the level of polio we're going to have around the world. This is the level. It's too expensive. We haven't got a way to do it. Uh, the main guy, and I've forgotten his name, forgive me, who is like the polio expert, has been saying, we, we can't really do this. And Bill Gates 
has been going over there and saying, no, 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 we're going to get rid of polio. It's going to be extinct. Solvable problem. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it this way. And the way he's doing it is with billions of dollars, but also billions of dollars handled really efficiently with no payoffs to bureaucracies, with no trickle-downs, with nothing else. He's actually going and not giving the money to dictators and not giving the money to what looks for his re-election, but actually solving it. So this stuff can be done. Sure, but now in in terms of... um you know, like something like uh, some sort of socialization of healthcare or that kind of stuff. Some yeah. sign, do you believe that that should be? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, and uh, the argument for this is Lasix. Uh, Lasix is an amazing thing. Uh, Lasix uh, eye was, surgery yeah, wasn't covered. Do you by, have it? Uh, no, I don't. I didn't I, get it. it yeah. Scares me. Yeah. Well, well. Okay. Not the point. Not the point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for for all sorts of reasons. It wasn't covered by insurance. So the people that got LASIKs actually paid for it. And without having, we don't have health insurance in this country. We have prepaid health care. There's a big difference. Um, LASIKs keeps getting cheaper and better. It gets cheaper and better like crazy, even as all other health care gets mm-hmm. really expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, you have the people who are going to be paying. You know, health care can't be free. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the amazing thing about uh, Obamacare was we are going to bring health care to everybody. And yet the bill doesn't call for more doctors or more hospitals or more equipment. That isn't even in there, which means that whatever the ratio is now of people who get health care has to be the same. You can't vote to have more doctors. There have to actually be more doctors. So I don't know what the solution is, but people, individual people, can make better decisions for themselves than a collective. And that is very important to what I believe. And sometimes that's wrong. There's some things you have to do collectively. You certainly have to do defense. You certainly have to do police. You certainly have to do courts. You know, you cannot have a private police force. You know, that has to be done collectively. So there is there is a a line there and a sliding scale. But I think when you uh, if you have prepaid food, if you have uh, food that we all pay into, there's nothing but gourmet shops. There's nothing, there's no reason you would eat anywhere except the most expensive places ever. And that's what's happening with healthcare being done through insurance. And they also haven't changed any of the players. I mean, the insurance people are all still in power and all that stuff. But the, the real question is if we have one doctor for, you know, for 500 people, no matter how we juggle Who's paying for that? It's still one doctor for 500 people. And how do you change that? What they've really done, I think, is they will um, uh, de-incentivize people to go into medicine. And the other question is... uh, Yeah, because they don't want to just have a job. They want to be doctors who are celebrated as doctors. Right, but also the the right to health care is really crazy because health care doesn't exist it's not a uh it, it's not a natural thing no i think that it they, has to be right. it has to be created right. so when i when you come up with a process you yeah. come up with a pill that yeah. will help my high blood pressure sure now i didn't have a right to that pill 
before. The second right? before you sure. invented it. Sure. Then you invented it, and now I have a right to it. And the question is really, who pays you? What do you get out of it? And trying to make other people be altruistic to say, because you chose to invent this medicine, instead of playing football, you'll get paid less. You know, what you should have done was played football because you can have well, an unlimited I get, amount of I get of money that, but I think the, the, the other side of the issue is is that, you know, when you have a lot of people in a country that are in sort of dire straits and dying uh-huh. and feel like they have no real recourse and that, like, just in my own experience of insurance, and, yeah, you know, I don't want to get too far into it. It's just that the fact that there are people that live in countries that never have to worry about whether or not they can afford to get basic fucking health care. But it's kind of exciting. You also have to see where where your breakthroughs in medicine are coming. No, and I get that. A, that's I, a real I, important obviously point. People need to be it's, rewarded. It's much better to yeah. have Canadian health care if you're on the border of the United States because the real, you know, who are the superstars that are going to do that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's really nice. And um, uh, you can decide whether you think the government does a better job at taking care of people or individuals do a better job at taking care of themselves. Well, I hope and that's you're right. really that's really the issue. No, that's I know really and, I, and I think that And we won't we won't find out because no, of course. we are going all socialist and that is the decision we've made in this country and that's that's fine. You, you think know? we're going all socialist? Well, we're we're going definitely in that direction. I mean, it's uh, is uh, we'll see. I mean, I, remember, I'm someone who's against public schools. Yeah. So do you, you homeschool? Uh, I do not. I go, my, my children go to private school. Yeah. But I uh, I think that uh, being educated by your government seems like a really bad idea to me. I don't trust the government to do anything because the government is force. The government is guns, and I'm one of those nuts. And I really think that I'm a peacenik at a level you cannot believe. Are you armed? I will not force you. No, I'm not ever. I will not force you to build a library. I will not force you to do. I, I will not use a gun. I will beg you to give money to build a library. But when you pull out a gun and say, "Pay your taxes for this library." I get a little bit iffy. But the first thing I want to do is just stop the wars because that's where most of the money is going. Sure. And, you know, if you can just stop the six wars we got going, and as Teller said, which I really love, um, using money we don't have to kill people we don't know for reasons we don't understand. <laughs> just, just stop all six of the wars we have going. Stop all of those, yeah. and I'll give you all the health care you want. Yeah, yeah, That's a compromise we can make. Well, okay. You just tell me we'll stop killing people, I'll pay for all your health care. Well, I'll give all the taxes. This is very giving of Penn Jillette to make this promise. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. They're no. looking at this thing and saying, we have to cut Social Security, we have to cut Medicare. I just go, okay, let's argue about that later. Stop the fucking war. we got to tax the super rich. Okay, what what... Bill Gates has taxed all his money that pays for two days of the wars we have going overseas. How about we don't tax anybody, don't cut anything, and just stop killing people? Because it turns out killing people's really fucking expensive. And really evil. <laughs> really, yeah. But I'll just not, don't even look at that. Yeah. Just look at this as a corporate guy and going, sure. okay, yeah, uh, yeah, where's our good. money going? Yeah. We're pissing away a lot of money killing people. Can we kill these motherfuckers cheaper? Yeah. No, we really can't. Yeah. Let's stop yeah, doing yeah, it. Let's cut it. Well, I fucking hope you're right about, uh, you know, I believe that what you're saying is right in that people are are, uh, good. I just don't know. I I think they get a little misguided. Yeah. And also, when you uh, are forced to give money at gunpoint that's supposed to accomplish something, it makes the joy of giving that money on your own a little little less great. Yeah. You know, it's uh, this great joy in giving people and helping. A great joy. It's it's part of being human. When it's separated 
from so many different things. When people pay their tax money, I don't think they really feel in their hearts this That's money going, is no, going directly not. to help people. No, they, they aren't thinking well, that. It, you know? it isn't necessarily. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and that's the problem is, is everybody who argues for the taxes says, but don't you think that you should be helping out the community? And I go, yeah, and I'll do that. Yeah. But taking money from me and using it to kill people and using it to push paper around and using it for to censor and using this to put marijuana smokers in prison, yeah, that's what you're really using the money for yeah. i'm keeping potheads in prison that's where my money's going and you tell me that i'm cruel because i don't want to pay that no 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 give me that money back the money that kills people and the money that keeps potheads in prison and i will use all that money. as a matter of fact all the entertainers on the strip we'll take care of all vegas yeah give us our money back we've got that one are you okay? guys all friends <laughs> well we're all acquaintances you know yeah. just like i was at caratop's house yesterday and yeah, there you go. <laughs> he told me about your house and i'm like oh i'm not going to his house <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the house. Yeah. The well, Carrot Top, Carrot Top's a great case of somebody who does a real solid show that people enjoy, and comics have just decided he's the bad guy. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, it's getting a little better. I mean, yeah, that was, is, a, that was is, another is. time. And Checky Green, I tried to interview, but oh. like, I really wanted to, but someone did a, a, a fairly you know, thorough but uh, interview uh, piece on him that you know got back to him, and I'd been in touch with him. But this thing came out, and he thought he looked bad in it. And I caught him. I got him on the phone, and he was just aggravated and didn't want to do an interview. Well, you know, Shecky Green. I have I have a great Shecky Green story. Yeah. I went to see him just uh, last year, I guess, yeah. maybe this year. He's so wonderful, yeah. so fabulous. And I'd never met him. And I go yeah. backstage afterwards, and he was so so kind to me and so sweet and seemed to know yeah. who I was and yeah. it was wonderful. And he's doing, because he's jacked up. He's yeah. off stage. So he's doing stickler for me. Yeah. You know, and I'm just so flattered. And he goes, uh, where are you from? Yeah. And I say, Massachusetts. And he goes, no, no, no. Where are your people from? Where are your people from? Oh, yeah. Are you a Jew is what yeah, he was asking. Exactly. Yeah. But no, no, he's going, where am I going to go for yeah. the shtick? Yeah. And I say to him, uh, Newfoundland. Yeah. My people are from Newfoundland. Yeah. And he stops dead and goes, what do you do for Newfoundland? Do, do people have Newfoundland hugs? I mean, does Robin have a Newfoundland? Pe- what comic has Newfoundland shit? What do you do? Stuff on the dogs? What do you What do you do on Newfoundland? I've never had anybody in an audience say Newfoundland. What the fuck? I'm stumped. Yeah. He said, I got Jewish stuff. I got Polish stuff. I was hoping Gillette I'd have some French shit yeah. to do. But Newfoundland? <laughs> it was just a great, great moment. What do you got on Newfoundland? Is, are your people really from Newfoundland? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't fucking with them. It's actually true. My people are from Newfoundland. You haven't got Newfoundland material. No, I got none. <laughs> now I'm going to go work on some. Yeah. yeah. Get a or maybe not, not talk to the audience so much. What I want you to do as we end this, yeah. you have a homework assignment. Okay. Next time I see you do yeah. your stand-up, I want to see a Third Amendment hug. Okay. I want to see a Newfoundland hug. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I, I will work on that. What times? So you got a show tonight yeah <laughs> now do you uh do you still when you get up there do you get lost i mean you in it i mean do you like oh you know? I, I love doing the show every night love yeah it. that's great well thanks for talking to me thank ben. you that was it that was my time with pen gillette a very sweet man as it turns out i hope you enjoyed that uh please do what you can for yourself and the, your loved ones and for my show, if you'd like, you can go to WTFPod.com, get all your WTFPod.com needs met. You can kick in a few shekels. You can buy the uh, new merchandise. we got some packages available in the merch section for Christmas. Get yourself an app. Get yourself um, 
whatever you need, whatever I can do for you. And you can listen to the show there, WTFPod.com, JustCoffee.coop, available over there at WTFPod.com. And as I mentioned earlier, I will be at the Arlington Draft House December 2nd and 3rd. That is this Friday and Saturday. Come down if you're in the D.C. area. I have been funny lately. Again, thank you, Seattle, the Neptune Theater, and thank you for coming out. It was great seeing you. I had a great time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Boomer. Boomy. Come here, Boomy. This hasn't really worked since that one time we were able to pull it off. That's not a cat. Whose dog is that? <laughs> <laughs>